Hello and welcome to session eight of You Matter. Thank you for joining me for session eight of You Matter. Today, I'll be talking to physiotherapist Susie Martin about asking for help. Do you ask for help? How do you ask for help? Do you completely avoid asking for help? And when you do ask for help, is it forthcoming? Susie and I talk about her experiences uh, of asking for help and where she has felt support and at times where she wished there had been different resources and systems available to support her. We also, on a practical level, have a discussion around some resources that you can use, whether you are an employer uh, or an employee or self-employed, as a process of um, acknowledging the support that might be required and how that might be provided within your workplaces. So a very, very practical discussion, but also some useful reflection on the culture in healthcare and how good we are, how comfortable we are with asking for help and, and where, where, the, where that historically may have come from. I would really appreciate your feedback on this one. You may have your own experiences and you may have resources that you'd also like to share. So listen through to the end and do get in touch if there's anything you'd like to contribute. Thank you very much. I hope you just enjoy the discussion and I'll be back at the end of the podcast. So hello and welcome to session eight of You Matter. And I'm here today with physiotherapist Susie Martin. And the discussion that we're going to have is around well-being and mental health concerns in the workplace. Um, Susie and I met through uh, contact on Facebook. And Susie was a member of Catherine Ashmore's Clinician's Den Facebook group and noticed some things that I'd posted. And we got chatting and realised that we had some um, uh, some views that uh, there's quite a lot of um, synchronicity in our thoughts about uh, these issues around well-being at work. And we had a, a great conversation, realised that there was probably more in common than we'd originally thought. And so I wanted to explore these ideas a little bit more in a full podcast. And actually, I'm finding at the moment that uh, even though Susie and I first spoke a few months ago, and it's taken us a, a little while to get to the point of recording the podcast, now feels a particularly good time to be having this conversation. Um, I don't know particularly the reason, but I'm noticing with people I work with that we seem to be at another, another stage in this pandemic where a lot of people are feeling weary, um, I guess, perhaps finding that the summer didn't provide the relief that they had hoped it would. I'm not sure that anybody's holiday could quite deliver what it needed to this year to get us back on track to start again. And I, and I think you know, kids going back to school in September, almost a new year feeling. It's, it's probably a time where we're reviewing how we're feeling again. So it seems like a really good time to be having this conversation. But before I do the entire podcast by myself, <laughs> let me introduce my guest, Susie Martin. Hi, Susie. Um, so as I said, you're an MSK physio. Would you like to tell people listening a little bit more about yourself um, and how you and I came to be talking about this? Yeah, so I have been a physio for 15 years. I've been in musculoskeletal outpatients for probably 10 or 11 of those years. And I've worked in the NHS, 
also in small private clinics. I've done some locum work and I currently work in a small private hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and I forgot what you just asked me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, it, it, it's interesting that you and I have, have come to discuss this well-being topic, neither of us being, you know, reps at work that have managed that kind of issue or anything like that but um what what is it that sort of um piqued your interest in this topic so my own personal experiences basically I would hold my hands up and say that I seem to be a little bit more stress prone than perhaps some of my other colleagues okay. so alongside my most of my physiotherapy career I've sort of been looking into different ways to manage well-being I think I started off maybe at Lewisham I saw an advert for um, a mindfulness course mm. and I started and I went and did a bit of that but then I also did some reading around that so that was one of the first things um, and just at various points in my career when I've been having a bit of a stressful time you know part of it is my personality and you know sometimes my managers would sort of talk to me and it would be very much along the lines of what what can you do to mm. help my stress and of course there always would be certain things um but actually sometimes I thought well it it feels like there's a lack of support when it's all down to me and actually I think that there's some more external factors mm. uh, that need addressing also physiotherapy is not my first career I did a degree in psychology and then I didn't pursue psychology I went into a few admin jobs but I've worked in different environments and so the feel has been very different and you know I was coming in as a pair of eyes sort of seeing fresh maybe some of the things mm. within the system that I think can contribute to stress and I suppose if you're a bit more stress prone you're a bit like the canary in the coal mine you're sort of the first sign of things not being quite right and actually yeah. I did all my investigating maybe at various times before the pandemic so to me those things were always there and they always needed addressing mm. and the pandemic has just shone a great big light on those things um, so it's really great in a way that it has now forced people to have those conversations that they hadn't been having before so I had gone to the CSP to look up on the website things about clinician well-being and there was nothing on there. If you look at physiotherapists and mental health, it's all about physiotherapists who work in the mental health field. <laughs> there was literally nothing. Mm. Um, I did a bit more digging and uh, we can talk about it a bit later, but I did find a, doc a document on workplace stress that the CSP has um, produced, but there's no sort of more general discussions or they hadn't been until now mm. uh, and no kind of pages with support or anything if you go to the British Medical Association they've got like a counselling 24-hour counselling helpline they've got pages dedicated to where to go if you're struggling with mental health or addiction problems they've got pages around um, people sharing accounts of a difficult time in their career that was personally mm. difficult them but related to their work or maybe related to things outside of work and so you're hearing these stories and seeing these things and I just wasn't seeing any of those conversations being had in physiotherapy and now things are a little bit different mm. but there's still a lack of information there really. Yeah I agree I, I've um, 
done a bit of work with medics and um, before working with physiotherapists, actually, and I agree with you that even though it's it's not brilliant in um, in medicine, um, and certainly I don't think the medics feel that the support is enough or adequate or that there's sufficient for for their demand, certainly at the moment. Um, but yeah, I agree with you that there at least is something. There's the practitioner health program and some of the resources you've just mentioned. Um, yeah, if you Google it, you will find something. Whereas I agree in physiotherapy, it's not been um, a topic that's particularly been or doesn't seem to have been on the agenda. And I'm a little bit older than you, but I was reflecting on my career, um, just preparing for this podcast and thinking back, you know, as it happens in my early career, I I jogged along quite happily, uh, wasn't aware of having any particular issues, perhaps small bouts of depression here and there that I had kind of started to recognise patterns as a teenager. And so I, I just, I think I I remember talking to a couple of friends about it at the time, but just saying, oh, you know, yeah, I know this thing. Yeah, I know how to deal with it. It'll pass. It'll pass. And I think my probably my thought was that um, there, there certainly wasn't any support available at work, but also that I had no reason to expect that there would be. I don't remember feeling particularly disgruntled about that. But looking back on it, I just had no expectation. Um, and all my appraisals and reviews would have been very much around my performance and my career planning what courses I was going to do next I I don't recall being asked if I was okay and I don't mean to say that people were uncaring or that if I'd had a problem there would have been no one to go to but looking back it wasn't a sort of door that was held open it was almost like if I had had a problem I'd have had to find my way through to the right person or you know just someone who I got on better with at work rather than there being a a particularly obvious place to go and I haven't worked in the NHS um, for 20 years now and I've owned my own clinic for the last 10 years so you know hand on a heart I've needed to be on the other side of that fence and things may well have improved um, within the organisations that I was used to they they may be much better now but yeah I, I just I guess my point is I think I had pretty low expectations. Yeah, well, that's like anything, though. You only know what you know if you have no other experiences. Mm. Particularly when you're younger, you are more, you're more sort of flexible. You just kind mm. of accept what comes along and you don't necessarily, you haven't really developed any preconceptions. Um, but I remember... It's not so much now, but I remember being maybe a student and on the wards and me and the other student on the placement had gone along to see our clinical specialist treat a patient. But it actually turned out she was she basically died (laughs) while we were standing in the corridor looking into the room because we hadn't even all had time to get in there. and, um, And I just remember thinking. Well, when I went into physio, I was thinking more about, you know, musculoskeletal rehabilitation, I suppose. And I didn't really know about respiratory physiotherapy. And uh, I certainly didn't think that I would be encountering death. Mm. And no one really said anything about it. It was just like, carry on. Mm. (laughs) And so I was like, well, that's just me as a physio. So like, what? you know maybe that is the problem is because you don't expect it there's no real Mm. training about it or discussion about it or 
you know, reference to the fact that, I mean, what if I'd had a bereavement or something difficult? Going yeah. on? That would be mm. really quite a shock to the system. Um, and I remember that really stuck in my mind. What a surprise that was, that there's no debriefing process or no no kind of offer that if that was really difficult for you, where would you go with it? Mm. And um, big question, but what, what do you think might be the organisational or cultural factors that, that might feed into this, this problem? I suspect it's probably endemic through the whole of healthcare. And one of the things that makes me think about that is because I think you've read it, but the Adam Kay book, This Is Going To Hurt. Yeah. That was a real good window into that's just healthcare people ex- are kind of like well what did you expect mm. um, uh, but that doesn't make it any less difficult emotionally it just means that you go oh well there must be something wrong if I'm having difficulty managing it you just deal with it and get on with it that's the standard approach so I think that is endemic in healthcare and obviously books like that and um, I think Rachel Clark's been writing about the junior doctor experience mm. as well. Um, those things are starting to shine a light more on this, that actually the standard approach maybe isn't the best. And perhaps it's a bit like, you know, corporal punishment. That used to be acceptable. And it's not now because mm. maybe that's not great for people. Um yeah, organisations grow out of their time, don't they? And that doesn't mean that they that the model that they were founded upon is correct as they go through generations and and as we change culturally. I, I was really interested in something you said at the start that you just made the assumption that you I, don't, I can't remember the exact words you used, but were something like a more stressed person than everybody else. And um, what was it that made you come to that conclusion? well I suppose the conversations that made me feel like it was my responsibility to do something about it and therefore it wasn't a problem generally Mm. therefore nobody else must be feeling the same things and did you did you pick up that message because the response was to offer you things that you could do for yourself to make you feel better or to cope better or however you received that message yeah and it wasn't it was because this was in a time even before self-care I think was more you know um you need to get better at prioritizing or you need to get better at Mm. x y and z thing Mm. and I've got better at lots of things (laughs) (laughs) that help um but I think that the wider issue is that nobody's been having the conversations Mm. it's not been viewed as a collective responsibility to look out for each other because actually sometimes it's really difficult to see it for yourself yeah um it's also really difficult to have a a one-on-one conversation where you don't necessarily know what other people are having one-on-one conversations so it feels like being singled out whereas actually if people are having more open discussions generally Mm. the colleagues in the department and the general well-being and the the general morale then that feels more like a collective yeah 
responsibility absolutely and, yeah. and holding each other up and and it's the same as you said uh, that generally would happen if I was somewhere where I happened to have colleagues that I clicked with better mm. and colleagues that were my friends and but it wasn't the general sense in every place that I worked and that was contrary to the expectation that I had 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 of how it would be to work in healthcare I thought it would be regardless of the difficulties that you might have patients would feel like a very warm nurturing supportive environment yeah and it often didn't and I think that's because we're so busy all the time Mm, mm, mm. and I think it's hard to have time to look out for each other so then it is very much well sink or swim you just have to learn how to swim yeah do you think also there's a, a thing about um I mean I, I've made this point on previous podcasts and um maybe I overplay this point, but I I just have this feeling that there's quite a strong professional identity associated with physiotherapy. Um and it's it's a very helpful, sort of pragmatic, cheery, positive, get stuff done. Um, type of identity which nobody's going to deny is you know a good thing and nice thing to be in a nice way to be thought of but I wonder whether this thing about you know, belonging is is being accepted for all of you um, and sometimes all of you might include the part of you that worries a lot or uh, gets upset about things or wants to know the detail or gets stressed or or you know is affected by things that are happening outside work sometimes all those things which yes it's not ideal if you want a perfectly old machine that just runs smoothly all the time but that's not humans is it and to get that belonging in a department or a clinic or a workplace organization it strikes me that we might have to expand that acceptance a little bit yeah and be a bit more authentic Mm that's part of it Mm. um it just makes it more difficult if you brush those things under the carpet Mm. and for some reason we can sort of allow for patients to have difficulties and have difficult conversations with them or they might tell us things that they can't tell other people and that seems to be all right but we suddenly can't do it between ourselves yes yeah yeah We, we have to be held to different standards yes yeah, and I, I do wonder if that's what's happening now, um, not just at this point in the pandemic, but you've alluded to the fact that you're quite pleased, albeit for an um, extremely sad reason, that we have had to start uh, addressing these issues and opening up and talking to each other more. And I wonder whether it's just because you know it's got to the point where things going on in your personal life probably have spilled into work more than usual this year, um, the sheer workload and pressure at times has been much greater even than the large workload you're probably managing before um we've had to be more flexible more adaptable and maybe maybe even us copers and perfectionists have reached our limit yeah and I have to say my personal experience of the pandemic is much more of a personally difficult year than a professionally difficult one yeah um we actually, because right at the beginning, we had to shut our department. We had more time with each other as colleagues. We stopped working shift patterns. We spent more time with each other. Mm. And that was a golden time. And that has spilled over into afterwards. I think we all sort of noticed the difference that it made in terms of how everybody got on. Mm. Because 
who weren't doing everything on the hoof, not able to take mm. the time to have a proper conversation. Mm. Uh, that was really helpful. So I guess some of these pandemic experiences have been people pushed to their breaking point, but there are other things that come out of it too. Yeah. Um, but what about the people like me who were struggling a bit before the breaking mm. point? I, mm. I worry about those. Um, yeah, I I don't know where I'm going with this bit now. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I was, I was going to ask you actually move on to, so, you know, in an, well, not in an ideal world, because we're not going to be in an ideal world, are we? But how can we do this better? How can we start to pick up issues earlier? Um, and I'm talking, I am talking pragmatically here, not ideal world, but say, say for example, Susie, you were, you found yourself in a new job, head of a department or a clinic, you know, what sort of bottom line processes would you like to see in place as standard in our work organisations to try and detect some of these things a little bit earlier and to put some support systems in place? So I actually will refer now to the two documents that I sent you because I actually, Mm. it's been a long time since I've looked at them and I'm like, actually, these are two really useful things for different Mm. people. So I'll talk about those in a little bit. Um, But I might consider other things like um, the way that we interview people for jobs is very, very competency based. Right. We don't really sort of think about the people or the personalities or the fit. And sometimes I think doing things like um, I think I talked to you about the Myers-Briggs, that's that's mm-hmm. one way of doing it. There's probably lots of different ways of doing it. But some sort of personality profiling to help people understand who they are and how they work and who the other people in the department are and how they might work. Yeah. Something like that would be really helpful. Um, and then the two documents I'll refer to. So one is produced by mine. So this is something that I found online and I took it to my manager and used it. So it's something called a wellness action plan. So it's a 20-page document that describes what the wellness action plan is. And then five of those pages are actually questions about um, your mental health. So you as an individual will fill out this form with your manager and that will sort of stay with you through your role. And so I'll run through the questions in the mm, world. Yeah, do, because when you first hear that, I can I can almost hear the hackles going up and um, people think, oh, what kind of questions? And, and, and actually, when I read it, I my hackles were calmed down. So, yeah, yeah. Do, do, do share and some of it. you might not have to fill out the whole big thing, but it might just provide a little framework for your manager mm. to think about things to ask. So um, question one is, what helps you stay mentally healthy at work? So that could be things like taking an adequate lunch break away from your desk. And actually, I will refer back to one of my jobs. I actually asked if I could have an hour lunch break mm. because half an hour in outpatients, when you're probably still writing your notes, so it's really 15 minutes, yeah. wasn't really doing it for me. And my department agreed that I could have an hour lunch break. I was the oh. only person in the whole hospital doing that. Wow. The department, but that worked for me because it meant I just had time to sort of calm myself a little bit before the afternoon session and you know I could go outside for a walk or something like that which I couldn't have done with a short mm. so things like that um so yes what helps you stay mentally healthy at work 
Number two, what can your manager do to proactively support you to stay mentally healthy at work? Uh, number three, are there any situations at work that can trigger poor mental health for you? I think so, that's a really helpful one. Yeah. yeah. And so that's really useful because it might be things like certain types of patients that you're having difficulty with or, mm. you know, certain tasks that you really struggle with because you can get really granular then and go into like what are actually the stress points for you Mm. and if there's stress points for lots of people oh maybe we need to do something differently but if there's stress points for you how can we make that bit easier it might be talking to you about how you're doing a task because maybe there's a different way that you could do it or managing a certain patient or a certain other colleague Mm. or a piece of equipment that we're missing and we didn't realize or something like that yeah um, or, you know, for example, at the moment in my job, our admin's up the creek and that is the biggest stress point is not having the documentation that we need in the right place right. That's because of COVID. Um, number four, how might experiencing poor mental health impact on your work? So this is really useful. So it's things like having difficulty making decisions, struggling to prioritise, difficulty concentrating, drowsiness, confusion, headaches. So... Um, those sort of things might be different for everyone and you might know them yourself but your manager might not necessarily know to look for these things or you might not know them for yourself and you go through this document and it starts to make you think oh actually how does the stress manifest for me or Mm. that's what I was going to say actually Susie on that one I think sometimes the benefit of something like this might be going through and and just realizing oh gosh there is a bit of a pattern to my headaches and oh I always seem to be particularly tired in this after lunch slot or something yeah that you wouldn't have you might have addressed that you weren't feeling great but you wouldn't have looked at it in that detail and and looked for patterns and things like that yeah and so when I've had a conversation with my boss about this we've sort of established that I actually go really really quiet okay when I'm stressed and so I could go under the radar because people haven't really noticed right um and so, so noticing that you're quiet if yeah. I'm quiet to maybe start probing a few more questions mm-hmm. to see if I'm all right um five are there early any early warning signs that we might notice when you're starting to experience poor mental health so that's quite similar again mm. something like going quiet um what support could be in place to minimize triggers or help you to manage the impact so that could be things like catch up time with the manager guidance on prioritizing the workload flexible working making reasonable adjustments so i know also when i've had a difficult time with um a parent being ill i've been given slightly like a, a, a few more breaks in the day yeah at a really difficult time and that was really helpful um and that's not something that's particularly been modeled for me in a lot of places at work because mm. it's not an option but actually on a temporary basis that was quite a useful thing to know that mm. you could do make a yeah. reasonable adjustment I think a lot of these things you know there might be people uh, particularly business owners um or department heads listening to this and thinking well you know I can't be doing different things for everybody but I think what this makes you think of is what first of all what are the individual uh, the things that are really individual to this person because of I guess intrinsically what's going on for them 
Um, and is it just them or may those things be intrinsically going on for other people as well we just haven't talked about it Um, and which things are extrinsic so you know the workplace the equipment the um, the lighting the noise levels all those kind of things which potentially could affect lots of people you know I think you sometimes you're reluctant as a business owner to make changes because you know it won't please everybody but it's a different mindset isn't it is it's actually I think this this template helps you separate out okay so which things actually could I do um for this individual that would make their life their working life better uh, less stressful create more ease that actually doesn't have a doesn't actually affect anybody else one way or the other but it just makes this particular person's working day easier and actually the knock-on of that effect of that might be to improve other people's day because maybe I don't know some people when they get stressed they may become more um they may worry about more stuff and they may ask more questions and it may that may come across to somebody else that they're being difficult or something whereas if we can address the things that are causing that person's worry then you know maybe that improves somebody else's situation as well so I think it's a combination of individual and collective and the other thing is with physiotherapy your assets are your people we yeah. have a product that we're selling you know it's you as a physio, your knowledge and expertise that you're providing to the patient. So mm. it's within everyone's best interest to have their staff on top form, basically. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've actually implemented this um, in your current uh, place of work, have you? Yes, although I haven't reviewed it because I haven't felt the need to. But the fact that we did it in the beginning was really important. And, yeah. um, you know, I know that it's there should I start struggling again Mm. and And my manager will also say hmm maybe we should review your wellness action plan if she notices that I'm going quiet or something well either one of us could suggest that as a as a thing to do I think it's come up and I've just said do you know what I don't you know I don't feel the need but I would use it again if I did feel the need yeah and that's been really useful it sounds like it feels more comfortable to know it's there. I mean, they they very much state, don't they, that it's not a legal document. It's not there to, um, you know, back up any claims or anything like that. It, it's just purely to open discussion and to clarify things, really. Yeah, and it provides a framework. And I think as physios, we like a framework and a linear process you know, <laughs> and a bit of documentation. And a form so, as well. <laughs> And so number seven, are there elements of your individual working style or temperament that is worth your manager being aware of? And I think this is really important because I would say that I am somebody who's quite sensitive, quite reflective. I don't work very well at speed. (laughs) And I'm going to be very different to someone who really likes to think on the fly. Mm. Uh, And some of that is what can contribute to the stress about my individual yeah you know temperament um number eight if we notice early warning signs that you're experiencing poor mental health what should we do so that's maybe similar to some of the other things but um the examples they give here are you know example talk to you discreetly about it or contact someone that you've asked to be contacted so you know i guess perhaps for someone who has some uh more serious mental health problems that might be something that they actually need another person mm. a third person outside to sort of be brought in to to help 
with the support. So it could be anything really, but I really like that because mm. it is so individualised. And I like to be patient-centred. Why not be physio-centred as well? Absolutely. So on the flip side, Susie, if I play devil's advocate. Um, you know, I'm a clinic owner, lots of therapists working for me, and I take this to a couple of people who just go, oh, goodness sake. I don't need that. I'm fine. Um, no, I'm not putting that in. Um, no, and I don't, I don't think there's anything we need, um, which you know, I can see that would happen with certain individuals. And what's your view on how this can be used so that you know it's there for the people that need it? People don't feel shamed one way or the other, whether they do use it or not. How do, how do you see it uh, being presented to a group of people, if you like? So I suppose you don't have to present them with a big long form. Hmm. I think as perhaps you could integrate it a little bit more with your general, you know, objective setting and things like that. And just say, I really value um, the the mental well-being of my employees. I think it's really important. Um, and the patients are going to get a better service if the staff are happy. And um, this is the way that I like to introduce that Mm. to you as an employee um I'm not explaining it very well but you don't necessarily have to go through a big long form just say you know we've got this it's there if you want it you don't have to use it but it would be helpful if you at least had a little look or you can just run through a few of the questions Mm. to give Mm. people food for thoughts I mean I don't think it has to be more complicated than that if people if people at a later date seem to be struggling, you could you could then reintroduce the topic. It's not a closed and open. No, I think you're right. And, and it may take a little bit of time for this process to be normalised alongside lots of other processes, which we accept much more readily. Um, I'm just thinking, I've, I've referenced a couple of times a conversation I had with Helen Preston on a previous um, podcast where she's talked about introducing more um, open and searching questions to her patients in the subjective assessment and she, she's um, she gave an example on the podcast I think of asking her patients what brings you joy and she says hand on heart quite a lot of times that question will be met with a slightly open mouth surprised look and um, often not an answer but then the people who she perhaps least expected it from might come back a week later and go, do you know what, when you asked me that, I thought it was a bit mad, but I've gone away and I've thought about it over the week and, and you know, and then come up with this very comprehensive answer. And it may be that we just need to start feeding these things in. And like you say, it will be helpful to some people. For lots of people, it, it won't be deemed necessary and it doesn't need to be forced upon them. But at least if these processes became, an, a, I guess, a normal expectation, then that just might reduce the shame both ways whether you did need support or you didn't it just becomes a natural expectation that it is there if and when you need it exactly it's like you said earlier the door that's being held open yeah rather than a door you have to find because it's hidden yes you have to walk down three corridors and then find the spare key and (laughs) unlock it we do sometimes ask questions you know, sometimes you have to ask a patient, what do you think is wrong? And they go, well, I don't know, you're the health professional. Mm. We're not necessarily responsible for how they interpret it. So we're not necessarily responsible for how someone responds to it. And maybe they're actually being quite defensive because it would really be useful for them. Mm. 
Yeah. But you know, you can't make someone fill it out, but you can offer it and then you've done your part and how they choose to to accept it is is on them really. Yeah, yeah. And how do you feel I'm going to play devil's advocate again at the moment and say, well, look, particularly in the middle of this pandemic, we could find out what everybody needs. Our ability to actually do anything about it is zero because the workload is just too great. I don't actually <laughs> hold that for you, but I can understand um, that uh, that point of view that, you know, literally it is just got to be all hands on deck. It's the busiest time we've ever faced. That's not going to change anytime soon. So, yeah, we 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 could open a can of worms that we have no ability to deal with tough question it is a tough question but I think perhaps even just having shown that that is a priority Mm. and that it matters yeah is already starting off that process of support yeah and it might not be something that individual departments can manage with the resources that they have in the time that we have now but actually if we're talking about collective responsibility people like the video physio matters podcast and Mm. um the csp and you know other people in prominent positions in the physiotherapy world could at least be making it acceptable even if we acknowledge that it is a problem that we can't immediately solve i mean there are lots of problems we can't immediately solve within the health service because the resources are strapped um but that doesn't mean that you don't try and improve things or don't have conversations about how you would improve things exactly yeah I absolutely agree and and you're reminding me of a a whatsapp thread that I started off um at my clinic just last week actually because I was preparing for a talk I was doing at the therapy live business um conference last weekend on workaholism and um I sorry no it wasn't that one it was preparation for the panel on retaining and valuing staff and so I I just threw the question out to people that work with me and said you know what sort of things are important to you and amongst lots of other things um lots about work environment actually uh, but one of the most prominent themes was I want to be listened to and I want to be listened to even when you can't change anything and even when you and I both know you can't change anything, you still have to listen. And I reflected on that one as a as a business owner or, and someone and or someone who can make decisions um, and can, in theory, change things. I've noticed a tendency to avoid conversations if I can't provide the fix. So, you know, if I can't provide the treatment and the rehabilitation program and the outcome that they want, it's hard to hear the problem. And I hadn't really recognised that behaviour pattern until I until I really looked at that thread, and it struck me that that can go up all the way to the top of organisations. You know that um, maybe not for bad motives. I'm sure not for bad motives, but sometimes, if you, particularly if you're a caring person that likes to solve things, it's hard to hear a problem that you know you can't solve. But I think it's really important to understand that for the person bringing the problem, sometimes just having it aired and thrashed out helps and my children say the same to me you know mom stop trying to solve it I just needed to vent at you and tell you what was going on. I don't actually want you to do anything just listen to me 
Yes. And I was about to say, I'm sure it is the same for parents. I am not a parent, but I can imagine that if your child is asking you for something you know you can't give them, you're going to feel really irritated because you're upset at it. And that's how it manifests. And I can imagine that's probably how it feels in a management role mm, mm. a lot of the time. Um, what do you reflect on, because we've talked a little bit about the CSP and what may or may not be available. I mean, with that in mind... Um, what's your reflection on what you have found through your searches and what may or may not be going on in relation to this issue of you know, listening even when you can't change? I'm just trying to work out what your question is asking me. It was quite loaded, wasn't it? Shall I rephrase that? <laughs> so I don't know whether you're talking about the health and the... Um, the workplace stress document or whether you're talking about the lack of information that I was able to find both in a way so um <laughs> what's your reflection on first of all on the lack of information and then yeah you, and you did send me this um 50 page document which you did find and I, I quite yeah but let's let's talk about the document afterwards but first of all yeah do you with your recent searches do you think it's any better than when you first started looking not enough because I mean, they, they, I would hope that I could find something like the wellness action plan that I found on Mind. Mm. There's no reason that they can't um, promote those sorts of things or even provide links to those sorts of things on the website mm. to make it easy to access the information. I, To me, and I might be wrong, it feels like it's indicative of the culture at large, which is there are no problems here, nothing to see, um, <laughs> because we we can cope with everything. We're very resourceful and positive and proactive and mm. we can we can manage everything. Mm. That's what it feels like. I could be wrong. Yeah. And I'm just thinking a lot of what I've heard a lot in the pandemic. Oh, I'm, I'm not a doctor. It's not that bad. I'm not an ICU consultant. It's not that bad. Yes. It doesn't matter, though, does it? No. I mean, they have... They have different things to deal with, but we actually spend quite a lot of time with our patients building relationships and there's a, a different kind of stress involved with that and trying to influence people's behaviour, mm. um, you know, rather than quick decision-making, referring on that type of stuff is a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, it, and it smacks of that need to put positive spin all the time, doesn't it? You know, oh, I, I know I'm not the worst off, or oh, no, I can't complain, oh, no, oh. It's minimising though, isn't it? And you yeah. actually, it's all about balance, of course. You need to be able to put things in perspective, so you don't want to be completely overreacting and catastrophizing to things, mm. but you also need to be able to acknowledge your feelings um, and respect your feelings and yeah. for other people to acknowledge and respect your feelings I think we tend to think that it's not all right to have feelings mm. or that we we, sh- we shouldn't have negative feelings that we shouldn't be upset about stuff we should just be able to man up yeah um, which goes right back to that different rules for the patient and us doesn't it and I mean, not that I'm suggesting that we play out the same standards and relationship when we're actually with the patient. You know, I think we all agree that there's a certain appropriateness um, and an understanding of your role and position when you are in that service provision environment. But 
it can just become all encompassing can't it and spill over into all areas of your life and and I'm not talking about becoming just like you know not being able to get through a day without crying Mm -hmm. and talking about your feelings I'm just Mm. talking about like 10% nudge towards a little bit more compassion for our profession yeah ourselves yeah yeah so let's talk about this this huge document um because there is some useful stuff in it isn't there there's some surveys and there's some interesting outcomes about the profession as a whole I've just got a page in front of me that talks about um a survey that was done in 2007 and then the national group of regional safety representatives was asked to um to do some further investigations and further interviewing and the outcomes of that were uh, around 76% of physiotherapists surveyed believe they're suffering from stress at work a significant 37% consider the level of stress as unacceptable and a quarter considered they've been harmed by their experiences of of stress and then the key factors in that were listed um, if you're if you're scrolling, Susie, it's on page 45. 92% of the responses cited demands of the job as their primary or one of the primary sources of stress. Examples of demands included too much work, insufficient time, long working hours, and not enough rest breaks, lack of learning opportunities in terms of lack of time or resources for CPD and courses was rated highly by half of the responses and over a third saw management of change as a significant cause of their stress. Now, this was back in 2007. And you're right, I think um, particularly the perhaps the CPD situation may have changed and improved in very recent times because of the way we've had to adapt um, uh, through the pandemic and, and seek out a lot of online education and things like that. But, um, you yeah, I'd, I'd imagine there wouldn't be much difference in those numbers and those reasons for stress if you did the survey again now? No, I don't think so. Get, um, I actually hadn't looked at that because it's such a large document. I've looked at different pieces of it. Yeah. Say 76% said they were stressed at work. Yes. That's a huge amount. Mm. And <laughs> I mean, stress is a relatively new phenomenon. I'd say in my parents' day, it didn't really exist. Um, and we also know that health, that stress is healthy too you need a certain amount of stress Mm. to motivate you and get your adrenaline going Mm. so you know it's all relative isn't it but that still sounds like a large amount to me and um in a group of people that are probably quite resilient anyway Mm. Mm. I would say um and the whole document I think is really interesting because it really sets out again the specific things that cause stress so like it breaks down causes of stress at work into physical conditions job design um contractual or like um work organizational factors and then sort of relationships so that might be with colleagues or managers or patients um or even if you're working in a really isolated way I'm sure there's lots of first contact practitioners who've gone from working with teams of people that are now probably working by themselves, for example. And is anybody sort of thinking about how that might impact on people? Um, So, again, it's a framework for getting really specific about these 
stress points, which we should be good at because we write problem lists all the time. Mm. It's just that we write them really with reference to patients' physical um, capabilities and we're not sort of applying the same thing to um, occupational health matters. Um, Another stress which yeah and possibly this is quite a personal one but I, I have seen echoes of it in, in lots of other people who work with me and when we've had these kind of conversations but I I was almost quite happy through the first few years of physiotherapy when I was following the set path and then when I started to get an idea of what I might personally be interested in and which bits of the profession suited me I then felt um, less supported and I didn't feel a lot of enthusiasm gathering you know, I felt like I needed a bit of wind beneath my wings at that point and I couldn't feel it. Um, and I agree with what you were saying at the start. If we perhaps could spend a little bit more time understanding the individual and then developing systems and, and, and various pathway options that might suit different personalities. Um, I, there was a, quite a lot of talk uh, building up to therapy life business around you know, what, what, what processes are in place for career development? Um, and, you know, when you've got different disciplines working in the same clinic, do you have different structures in place for them? Um, and it's, you know, it might seem an odd source of stress, but for me, I almost felt like I'd built up a head of steam that then I didn't know what to do with at a certain point of my career. And, and it didn't seem like anybody else at that point once I you know might decide to go off the rails slightly you know I'm not talking about anything particularly rebellious just not the absolutely set path um it seemed to be a bit of a sort of bleak landscape then without too much support does that ring true at all or you know maybe that that is a very personal example no I'm just sort of um mulling it over really I think that's really interesting and that sort of partly about personality fit isn't it and then Mm. it's partly about the structure of the profession as a whole um because it really there's perhaps not enough specialism within the specialisms there's Mm. I've heard a lot of people talking about the fact that you know when you go up the career ladder in musculoskeletal there are specialist roles that involve lots of assessment but not really specialist rehabilitation roles Mm. uh, at this sort of clinical specialist level so um and that means that management is how you kind of go up the job ladder and that's probably not suited to everybody's personality no may or may not Um, be for you so that's there's quite a lot of things in there isn't there and Mm. also that's about maybe being creative isn't it if you're pulling together lots of strands of your own personal interests so you're creating your own sort of role and there's no one that's done it before um there isn't a way to support that creativity I suppose no and maybe it goes back to a bit like what we're saying about listening even when you can't change um even if you haven't heard someone express this wish before or followed that path before just to hear it and you know provide a bit of enthusiasm for it and and a listening ear again is helpful but again I think the pandemic has dragged physiotherapy into the 21st (laughs) century because everybody has had to get with the program on technology and how to use it and the best thing about that has been the CPD and the forming of networks and it being easy to find other people because I actually think you there are probably more ways to 
find people who are the wind beneath your wings. Yes. Yes. Good point. So yeah. That's actually quite exciting, I think. Yeah. And actually, that brings me to a final point I want to discuss, Susie. So, I mean, up until now, we've talked, I guess, a lot around a hierarchical structure. And, you know, that people could be listening, could be forgiven for thinking that we expect that all support comes from the level above. And, you know, uh, business owners and organisational heads should be doing X, Y and Z. But I think through the pandemic, we've realised there's a lot we can do for each other. And maybe there's some things that we currently do for each other or have done in the past that are not so helpful. I'm thinking about the ways we communicate with each other and particularly on social media. Um, So what, what are your reflections on how we treat each other more on a sort of peer level, what we might do better, what might be helpful for us to stop doing? What are your thoughts on that? Hmm, I don't know if I got an answer to that one. I think it's more the general culture of slightly moving away from manning up and stiff up a lip ring. Stiff up a lip ring. Yes, lots of words. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, oh, that is a good question. I don't know if I've got an answer for that one. I think it's just slightly nudging away from the culture of sort of being buttoned up and Mm. being seen as highly competent and coping with everything and do it all, do it perfectly and never let them see you sweat. Oh, yes, I remember that one. That's quite an early Brandy Brown quote, isn't it? Just say it again um, for us, Susie. Do it all, do it perfectly and never let them see you sweat. Yes, the swan. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And it's like you say, isn't it? Not that you want to be crying over your treatment couch every day and spilling your guts every day, but we're so far the other way a lot of the time, aren't we? Um, just that smooth, all together, smiley, everything's fine. And it's not just everything's fine at work, everything's fine at home. Yeah. Don't let them see you sweat. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do you think it is that we fear if people did see us sweat? So, um, the ideas are in my head, but I can't find the words to describe them. That you're less than knowledgeable or less than competent, I guess. Yeah. So unless you can do it all with a smooth polish and a... Uh, sort of calm exterior then somehow it diminishes the value of what you're delivering yes also I think that lots of people don't really know what physiotherapists do not only in the general public but within the other health professions right and that's to do with how we're trained because we just don't do enough there isn't enough resource that we can spend more time with other people just sort of learning and doing joint working it just doesn't work like that and I think physiotherapy are always sort of having to prove their worth in a way okay and so I feel feel like that's perhaps some of it you know um we're very very highly trained but we're not people everyone knows what a doctor and a nurse is and what they do Mm. um but I don't know that they necessarily know all the strands to physiotherapy 
And how do you, it's interesting that you brought that up in relation to the not seeing a sweat conversation. What was, what triggered the connection between those two things in your mind? If they don't understand what we do. Maybe not, not letting, not, maybe that's not about not letting them see you sweat. That's more about being able to do everything and do it well. Proving your worth. Yeah. Yeah. Not being found out to be lucky. Yeah. So we're back to imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> a large part of that as well, I think. This is just my perception, though. So other people might say that's nonsense. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're sitting at home saying this is nonsense, then come on the next episode and we'll just <laughs> Okay. Oh, we've we've gone around some uh, a range of topics, Susie. We've gone into all sorts of areas. Are there any any aspects that you wanted to bring up in this conversation that we haven't co- uh, covered so far? Is there anything else in that document? Anything you want to point people to? No, I would point them to the document. So, it, it, the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy is two thousand and nine document um, called Workplace Stress. Yeah, and it's really comprehensive, and I think it's really useful as a framework for looking and there at. There are some useful templates in there, aren't points. there? Yeah. And on the Mind website, the Wellbeing Action Plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's divided into sections, isn't it, for um, you as an employee and an employer? Um, quite similar documents, but it just gives a little bit of information as to um, how you might approach and introduce that document, depending on whether you are the employee or the employer both quite useful and really simple actually um i you know very easy to read and um really good instructions on how you might implement it it doesn't seem scary or um you know too too uh arduous in terms of of work no so Susie, as a final question, if there are people out there listening to this podcast thinking, yeah, I'm I'm that person who feels like maybe I am a little bit more stressed than the next person, and I'm the canary, I'm the one that's raising these issues, um, feeling a little bit uneasy about that, what would be your advice to those those canaries out there? So I think the first thing that you could do is actually go and source the wellbeing action plan, and then you can get clear for yourself on what the things are that you're struggling with okay and that gives you a framework to go to a colleague or a manager with to make it clear for them and so that you've identified the problems but also started to look at some of the solutions mm. um, and then it will make it easier for them to help you I guess yeah um, Good advice. it might also be about reaching out so the great thing now about the pandemic is there are some clinician support groups online mm-hmm. um the Clinician's Den, which is the one that we met on. Yeah. Um, I think Gemma Oliver's one. I'm not a member of that one, but there's that one as well. And I think yeah. these are really good places to start to just sort of maybe rather than reaching up at work, you're reaching sideways for mm. other colleagues and, and build supportive networks. So find people who are warm and supportive and encouraging and try and sort of boost those people to yeah. balance out anything else that might be going on. And then I guess it's really also about sort of making tiny adjustments to try and find the right fit of workplace for you if mm. still don't help you to manage in the place that you're in. Yes, maybe if the culture just isn't for you, um, yeah. seek out one that is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I would offer as a final reframe, um, 
you know, if you are that person feeling that way, chances are you probably aren't the one that doesn't handle stress well. You're probably just the one that's willing to talk about it. And particularly at these times, I think if you uh, asked your colleagues or you know where to do department surveys or things like that, I think you'd find you are not alone. Um, and in actual fact, by being that canary, just like the actual canary, <laughs> when they were used, you could be saving an awful lot of lives and, and supporting a lot of other people and opening up channels and helping us start to move these processes forward, normalising, talking about these issues um, so that we can get to the point where we, we take up these support offerings when we need them and we're not embarrassed about the fact that they're there when we don't or we don't have any thoughts about the fact that they're there even though we don't need them at that time it just becomes a normal thing for it to be available if and when you need it absolutely yeah oh Susie thank you so much for talking to me about this um I really appreciate it because it's it's not difficult it's not easy sorry to talk about it full stop and for you to come on a podcast and talk about it I really really appreciate that you were um able to step up and, and do that I, I really appreciate your um your willingness to come and talk about these issues and I, I know the topics will have been really really helpful I'm sure we'll get some good feedback and some interesting comments after this episode so thank you so much for your time my pleasure I'll be interested <laughs> to see what comes back from it yes yes we'd love to hear your comments at home thank you so much for listening everybody and thank you Susie I really enjoyed talking to you likewise <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to that great episode with Susie Martin. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, perhaps I hope you found it useful. And if any of the resources sounded like they might be helpful at work, then do go on to the Mind website and download that Mind uh, the Wellness Action Plan. Whether you're an employer, employee, self-employed, there are versions of that uh, which to suit everybody from whichever side you're coming at that from. And also um, that CSP document that Susie referred to. Similarly, if you would like some more regular support, Susie made mention of the Clinician's Den Facebook group run by Catherine Ashmore that hosts a whole series of resources to help with your um, mental health and wellness. And also Gemma Oliver's physio and therapist support group. In addition, I have a community group called Me Hub, which is uh, the community section of Me Hub. Uh, if you'd like to join that, then go on to the website www.mehab.co.uk and you'll find a section where you can join the community. And on there, I host discussions around things which are topical and concerning people in healthcare. Um, it's exclusively available to healthcare professionals so that you know any discussions you engage in will be with people who understand your world and are probably um, experiencing some of the same difficulties as you. So it's a chance to work some of those problems through, through conversation, uh, but I also post articles and podcast episodes and things like that to support your, your knowledge and hopefully your curiosity. Okay, so I uh, once again, I hope you enjoyed it and I look forward to seeing you again for the next session of You Matter. Do not forget, if you are a busy health professional giving yourself all day, every day to the people around you, then take some time for yourself because you matter.